the greatest assurance that the church of this and the next generation will arise is as we pass on the faith. And that's what this psalm speaks of. We know that God will preserve his people. It is his church. He builds it. But the way he desires to build it is through families and through the family. Families, the covenant families related by blood, but then the larger family, the family within the church. Let's give our attention to God's word here in Psalm 78. Oh, my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power, and the wonders He has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which He commanded our forefathers to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God whose spirits were not faithful to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we thank you for our worship up to this point, but our worship does not end at the message from God's word. This is a part of it. We thank you that you have spoken in the past. But when you spoke, it was not just for people of the past. It was for their children and their children's children all the way down to us and to our children and our children's children and on. Thank you. And we pray now that by your spirit, you would speak to our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we're talking about children, and we've, we've just simply got to recognize that their perspective is not always entirely accurate. A pastor saw little Alex uh, standing out in the narthex of their church. He was looking at a plaque that a, a lot of people just walked by and never noticed. 
plaque had some American flags on it. It had names of soldiers on the plaque. The pastor went over and stood by Alex, who was just looking up at the plaque, and Alex said, what's that, pastor? And he said, oh, Alex, those are the names of the men and women that have died in the service. Alex looked up again, and he said, which service, the 845 or the 11 o'clock? Maybe it was more true than Alex knew. (laughs) Why do we teach our children? And how ought we to teach our children? It is clear that God believes it's important that we do that. And he believes that the past is important as well. In a day that wants to ignore, to a great degree, history and historical lessons, that rewrites history conveniently, God says, no, not my people. We mustn't do that. So what is the importance of it? Well, let's take a look in this passage. Verse 2. It's about learning from from it, learning from the past. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. Now, the key word here is parables, uh, which is what the psalmist calls the history that he is about to recall. This is a lengthy psalm. I want you to read it at some point. Uh, It gives a lot of history of God's people, and that's an important part of the message to be passed on. But we're just going to focus on the first portion and then a few other verses to see the content of what we are to pass on. But he uses the term parable. Now, to us, the term parable, may we may think of a story and one that's not necessarily true. That's not obviously the way that he is using it here. Uh, the, the word, uh, to break it down, para means alongside of, and uh, balain, which is from the root there, means to throw, to throw something down alongside of. And what it's saying is uh, typically it's putting down a story alongside of a truth that you want to get the truth across. In this case... It is putting past history down next to the present history, how people were acting at that time, looking at the past and saying, you need to learn from this. You need to look at this because there are lessons here for you and there are for us as well. Now, what's he say about the importance of uh, teaching our, our children? Down at verse 4, it's our job to pass it on. We will not hide 
them those truths from our children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. Do you ever hide things from your children? Well, there's a time for that. Any, any parent, you know, there are some things that they are just not quite ready to handle. If they're very young, you don't share with them maybe all of the issues you are facing as husband and wife, or maybe if you have financial issues, you don't burden your children perhaps with, uh, with those kinds of things at that time. But he's saying, look, when it comes to the praiseworthy deeds of God, we won't hide those. We mustn't hide those. Now, it's more than just not hiding them. We need to teach our children concerning those things. Author Stephen Dunn reported a <coughs> reaction of two agnostic parents who were thinking about sending their children to a local vacation Bible school. Why would they send their children there? Well, when the pastor talked to them, this is what they said as agnostics. Soon it became clear to us that you can't teach disbelief to a child. Only wonderful stories. And we didn't have a story nearly as good. They said... Evolution is devoid of heroes. You can't say to your child, evolution loves you. The story stinks of extinction. And nothing exciting happens for centuries. (laughs) See, they didn't give up on evolution, but they began to get it in, in perspective. Nothing happens for centuries. I didn't have a wonderful story for my child. Christ followers do. And that's the glory of what the psalmist is talking about here. Now, why tell them the stories? What's the point? Well, you've got to start with what it says in verse 5 and 6, because God says to. It's God's command. Verse 5, He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children. There is a command. The command is teach these truths to your children. And then it gives the reason. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Now again, as parents, uh, we sometimes say, when we are asked, when we say something to our children and they say why, we sometimes say, because I said so. And you know what? That's okay. That's a right answer sometimes. And that's the answer at some point they need to accept. And in this case, if we were to say to God, well, why do we pass these on to our children the first place we've got to go is because the creator of the universe that gave us these children 
said, this is what you are to do. Pass these truths on to them. So if we said, God, why? He could say, because I said so. And that would need to be enough. But he didn't stop there. He went on to explain why. He first of all said so, but then he said, here's why. Verse 7 and 8. Because of the results, because of what happens when you pass them on to your children. Verse 7. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn, rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. Asaph, who uh, God used to write this psalm, is saying, we ought to tell the next generation for God's sake and for their sake. That's why we evangelize our own children. That's why we teach them about trusting in Christ alone for their eternal life. God says to, and it's for their sake. These things fall into that category. Now, what is it that we need to pass on to our children? Now, I want to go back to a term I've been using about telling them stories passing stories on to them. Because I want to make it very clear that passing stories on is not just about telling stories that have good morals to them so that they know how to live. It's not stories for story's sake. That's a moralism. But instead... And and those stories, by the way, could be told with or without Christ as the focus if you just tell stories. So what we are saying is that these are more than just good moral teachings, but eternity is staked upon these. There's something profound that is at stake as to whether we pass on accurately from one generation to the next these truths. So what are those truths? Well, we touched on this earlier, but I want to go in a a little different direction. The first uh, we see in verse 11 is the need for them to learn from the past. Verse 11 says, "They They forgot what he had done, the wonders he had shown them. (coughs) Now, how did he know that? Well, the rest of the psalm talks about it because of their actions. So obviously they had forgotten what he had done or they wouldn't have acted the way they did. There was an interview in Wired magazine uh, with filmmaker George Lucas. Star Wars, okay? And uh, he he said this. Now, you know, this isn't where we get our truth from out there, but what, what dawns on me is how God's common grace, how his truth is out there, even among those who may not even believe, but they understand these principles that, uh, that I'm putting forth today. 
they asked him, how, how do you want to be remembered? How will you be remembered? He said, I'll be remembered as a filmmaker. Technological problems that I solve will be forgotten by then, but hopefully some of the stories I told will still be relevant. I'm hoping the Star Wars doesn't become too dated because I think its themes are timeless. Now, here's, here's the part I want you to catch pertaining to what we're talking about. If you've raised children, you know you have to explain things to them, and if you don't, they end up learning the hard way. In the end, somebody's got to say, don't touch that hot skillet. So the old stories have to be reiterated again in a form that's acceptable to each new generation. I don't think I'm ever going to get much beyond the old stories because I think they still need to be told. Now He's talking about his stories with the themes that he's presenting. But Asaph would say, he's right. Asaph would probably say, amen, George Lucas. But he would go far beyond the content of Star Wars. He would say it's not about themes, general universal themes. It goes way beyond that. Do you know what recently was the fastest growing Protestant uh, churches among young people? What kinds of churches? This may surprise you. It was orthodox, liturgical type churches. Really? You mean with the, what they themselves sometimes call the smells and bells? That's right. Now, why is that? Why would a younger generation want those? Don't they, all, don't they want to hear music like they listen to on the radio and all that when it comes to worship? Well, of course, there's, there's always plenty that want that. But those who are studying this think there's at least a couple of reasons. That, that this next generation, to a great degree, has been deprived of a couple of things. One is the connection with the past. The stories, the hymns, the creeds that have been used throughout the centuries. And for that generation that sometimes feels isolated, it gives a connection. Which, by the way, that's one reason that we do a blended service here that in one service like today, you will sing a song from the, the uh, 1700s and also one from 2005. Because we will not be so arrogant as to imply the only things worth singing are from this generation. It's the same reason why I will look at modern commentaries and I will look at one's written sometimes hundreds of years ago, we believe that God gifts his church in every generation and that we are all a part of the greater body of Christ, the universal church, 
and we have much to learn and capture even from other generations as if, if Jesus tarries, future generations will have to learn from us. The second thing that uh, uh, this generation has been deprived of is the holiness and transcendence of God that the Orthodox churches tend to really focus upon. Too often, it's said, churches teach about God as if he's our little buddy in the sky. And he's there at our beck and call rather than the holy God who is to be worshipped in the way that he says he should be worshipped. So what about the content? Well, another aspect that Psalm 78 talks about is the nature of true repentance. Verse 34 and on. You see, when the people were judged, they repented, but their repentance was seldom true repentance. Look at verse 34. Whenever God slew them, they would seek him. They eagerly turned to him again. Looked like repentance. So they went through some trial. God, who prevailed upon them, pressed them, and they would turn to him again. Verse 35, they remembered that God was their rock, that God Most High was their Redeemer. But then they would flatter him with their mouths, lying to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not loyal to him. They were not faithful to his covenant. True repentance involves an honest acknowledgement of sin, a turning from it, an appeal to God's grace. And all of that is absent in what was just described here. That's what we need to pass on to our children the difference between true repentance and false repentance. They often see and experience a sorrow when they or someone they know or someone they observe gets caught. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm really sorry. And, of course, the sorrow has more to do with being caught. Not that God can't use that. We see that even in the Bible. But that's not all there is to repentance. The Shorter Catechism says repentance unto life is a turning from sin. So you have sin over here. It's turning from it, but not just turning from it temporarily. Turning toward God. You have sin, you have God, and it's turning toward God. And then one more element, and that is with the endeavor not to do that sin again. In other words, it's not a half turn with a peek back. I'll be back. I'll come back to you. Let me just get through this little bit of guilt. That's the false repentance. But it's turning your back on it toward God. And, of course, the key is the toward God because you will go back to it in all likelihood, and you for sure will go back to it if you turn to anything but God, if you turn to your own strength, you turn to your own reasoning, you will go back to it. Even if you turn to God, we sometimes turn back to that sin. 
And that's the turning toward God is the next thing we've got to teach our children. And that is the nature of God's grace. Look at verse 21. When the Lord heard them, he was very angry. His fire broke out against Jacob. His wrath rose against Israel, for they did not believe in God or trust in his deliverance. Now, given everything that God had done for them, who could blame God if he had just destroyed them at that point? Nobody. You couldn't blame him. He'd given them opportunity after opportunity. They had turned against him time after time. If he had just said, that's it, like most of us do at some point, that's it. You've had your last chance, and he could destroy him, and no one would have a right to say that was unfair. But what did God do? Instead of that, he provided for them. Verse 23. Yet he gave a command to the skies above and opened the doors of the heavens. He rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Time after time, he restrained his anger. Look at verse 38. Yet he was merciful. He forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. Time after time, he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. And here's why, verse 39. He remembered that they were but flesh, a passing breeze that does not return. So on the heels of teaching our children the difference between true repentance and false repentance, we must teach them about God's grace, the nature of it. Or they will think it's about their repentance. See, if we focus on repentance without God's grace, they will think, okay, well, the way I get back in with God is by doing something, and what I do is I repent. And so it's my penitence that gets me in favor with God. If we don't teach them about God's grace and see that, look, even if you turn, the only reason you have a relationship with Him is not because you've straightened your life out. It's because of His grace and His mercy toward you. And that ultimate grace is shown on the cross. And that's what all of the stories must lead to. That's what we teach our children. That's what we do here. That's what we do in the school time Bible. That's the glorious story. So what can we do to pass it on to the next generation? Well, workers. Burke mentioned it earlier. There's opportunities with these children that are in the public school. Future high schoolers in all of our area high schools, all of them come over here. What a strategic opportunity. What an impact. A number of them gave their lives to Christ last year. 
And then our ministry here, children's church, nursery. Wednesday night, we need people who will pass these stories, this glorious story, on to our children. Well, my, my children are grown now. I'll let the younger ones take over. Most of you have taken a vow when we have baptized children. The vow to assist these parents in the Christian nurture of their children. I wonder, in light of that, I have to wonder what God thinks when some of you hear a call of a need for our children, and you know in your heart you could do it, but your answer is, I've been there and I've done that. I'll let some younger ones do it. Some of you may say, well, I'm just too old, little children. They don't need me in there. You know what? Many of the children in our church are blessed to have grandparents nearby. But there's a lot of them that don't have grandparents nearby. They need people not just their parents' age, but their grandparents' age. They need to hear the testimonies of those who have lived life. They need to be loved by those in the previous generation. Those who are studying this youngest generation, the millennial generation, say that many of them actually relate better not to their parents' generation, but to the previous one for some of the same reasons I gave you earlier. Because they don't feel the roots that previous generations have had. Now, I know full well that not everyone here is called to teach. I'm not trying to imply everyone is. Some of you have a conflict on Wednesday night with the choir or some other ministry. By the way, some of those folks are helping with the daytime, uh, school-time Bible. But you still want to fulfill your vow, even though you have those conflicts or you... You don't necessarily uh, feel called to teaching the, the little ones. You can help out with them. But if you have a conflict, we need, and this is just as great a need, we need serious prayer warriors who will pray for our children and the classes that meet here. I'm a teacher, but I usually have those conflicts. And I, when I'm teaching, I'm usually teaching adults. So I asked if I could get a, a class that I could pray for. So I pray for the three-year-old Sunday school class. I got a list of all the children in there and their teachers, Kim Easley and Christy Cornelius. I pray for them every day. I have them up uh, where I see their names every day. And virtually every Sunday, I'll go down to their class and I'll peek in. Because you know what that does for me? That reminds me that these are the actual, these aren't just names, these are actual children and teachers. And how precious they are. 
and what a privilege it is, and it encourages me to want to pray for them even more. So what is our encouragement to do that? Well, verse 7 in this passage says, Then they will put their trust in God and would not forget His deeds, but would keep His commands. Grow up loving Christ. Covenant Church in Atlanta, my previous church, as you know, I was there for 18 years. At one point, we had a couple of visitors come in. They sat up in the balcony, and I met them afterwards. I didn't recognize them, but they had a very unique name, Mr. and Mrs. Studebaker. That's the kind of name you remember. And I said, you know, that's funny. I've only heard that name one other time, and it was when I was a little kid in El Paso, Texas. I was there when I was in third, fourth, or second, third, and fourth grade. And I had a teacher named Studebaker. Mrs. Studebaker, her husband used to come in some. And they said, El Paso, Texas? Island Presbyterian Church? I said, well, I was pretty little, but I think that's it. They were my teachers in one of those years there. She said to me in a conversation after we were, got over the amazement of that, she said, oh, you know, I, I hope I had something to do with you becoming a pastor And I said, oh, Miss Studebaker, I have no doubt that you and other faithful teachers that I wouldn't remember their name all poured into my life things that have determined my future. You, most of you, have Mrs. Studebakers in your life. You might remember their names, maybe not. It doesn't really matter. It's your turn to be the Mrs. Studebaker or Mr. Studebaker in someone's life. It's your opportunity. For some of you, it's your turn to come back. In any case... It is a joyful opportunity to pass it on. That they would put their trust in God and not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. Let's bow together.